This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the tragic tale of the last queen of France. Happy November, my dear listeners. October was pretty magical and spooky for me, and I hope it was for you too. That Halloween episode about Erzabet Bathory was kind of a last minute idea, but it was so fun and I hope that you enjoyed it. I believe this is episode 21 of Storical, and it's taken me this long to figure out how to do this, but I now have podcast analytics. And in the last week and a half, historical episodes have been downloaded 150 times. So I'm very excited to know that you're all out there and I'm not just talking to the ether. So thank you. Also, it's kind of fun. According to my Spotify analytics, listeners of this podcast listened to Death Cab for Cutie, The Spice Girls, and Queen the most in the last month. And wow, listeners, we truly are soulmates. That's probably the perfect mix to encapsulate my personality, slightly emo and goth light, as well as very campy and over the top. I'm so glad that we're on this journey together. Another thing that my podcast analytics tell me, although I was able to figure this one out without fancy numbers, is that you all are here for the tea on all the tragic queens throughout history. The Anne Boleyn episode has been downloaded about triple the amount of all the others, So I'm going to venture a guess that you'll enjoy our November series as we powder our wigs, add a few hoops to our skirts, and immerse ourselves in the world of Marie Antoinette. When I was in elementary school, I don't remember the grade, I had a history book with a picture of Versailles. I didn't know anything about Marie at that point other than I roll, let them eat cake, but I had a visceral reaction to that photo and I remember saying to my 9 or 10 year old self, I need to go to Versailles before I die. Fast forward to 2011, where I got to live out my dreams. I had just read Becoming Marie Antoinette, which was one of the very first historical fiction novels I had ever read, so I was very excited to get to look around the palace and the queen's hammo. I smiled like an idiot the entire time, like I was so happy and giddy that people actually smiled back at me because they probably thought I was dying or something and just, you know, having a last hurrah. I'm really unable to hide my emotions. In one of the queen's bedrooms was a little sign that had the notes of Marie Antoinette's favorite perfume. And I love the idea of wearing a perfume that smelled like Marie Antoinette. So when I got home, I looked up how to make perfume and I made that. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how Immortal Perfumes was born. You heard it here. To this day, the Marie Antoinette perfume is one of the most popular that I make. And at my perfume events, whenever I tell people that story, they get so happy Because even though Marie has historically gotten a bad rap, I think in the last few decades, people have a lot more sympathy for the queen. I love Marie very much, and I am indebted to her for my very strange career. So I hope that this episode does her justice. So sit back and imagine yourself dancing by candlelight in the radiant hall of mirrors as we begin the tale of Marie Antoinette, the last queen of France. Chapter 1. Archduchess of Austria. 
Marie Antoinette is so firmly rooted in the mythology of France that people often forget she was from Austria. And this is actually really significant. Austria and France had been sworn enemies, and it was Marie's marriage to Louis XVI that first brought the two countries peace. But old grudges die hard, so the fact that she was Austrian did not help her popularity when things went south for her. But I'm getting very far ahead of myself, so let's start at the beginning. Marie Antoinette was the daughter of the Holy Roman Empress, Archduchess of Austria, Queen of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia, Maria Theresa, and the Holy Roman Emperor Francis I. If you're like, wow, she's got lots of titles and seems more important than her husband, that's because she was. She was the last of the House of Habsburg and had more nobility in her blood than he did. She also was the main ruler, both by right and by interest. Francis was more of a scholar and very interested in business, so he kind of let her run with the governing and diplomacy, and she let him manage the finances. And he did pretty good because he got them out of the debt that Maria Theresa's father had left them. Maria Theresa was originally betrothed to Francis's older brother, but when he died, her father settled on the younger son, and Francis grew up in the same household as Maria Theresa. This close contact and understanding that they would eventually be married helped them develop a natural love and attraction to each other that resulted in Maria Theresa giving birth 16 times in just 20 years. 16 children, listeners. 16. That's not a litter of puppies. That's little archdukes and archduchesses. Of those 16 children, 10 survived to adulthood, which, I mean, for that time, that's pretty good. Maria Antonia, later Marie Antoinette, was the couple's 15th child and last daughter. She was born on November 2nd, 1755. Now let's talk a little bit about the Habsburgs' home life. Little Antonia, that's how I'm going to refer to her in the segment and what her family called her, grew up at both the Hofburg Palace and the Schönbrunn Palace. You have definitely seen these palaces. I'll link pictures, but it's those stunning buildings that come up when you Google Vienna. Now, Maria Theresa was a very strict, pretty terrifying woman. She was an exceptional ruler with high expectations of her children. She also perfected the art of the diplomatic arranged marriage. Like, if you thought Queen Victoria was good at marrying off her kids across the royal houses of Europe, she learned it from Maria Theresa. Each child she birthed, particularly the archduchesses, had an alliance cherry-picked for them based on diplomatic need as well as the beauty and intelligence level of each kid. Very practical woman. So needless to say, as the 15th daughter, Antonia wasn't originally destined to be the queen of one of the greatest countries in Europe. As such, her parents were pretty lax with her, and while she had tutors, they didn't really push her that hard. It was a combination of the tutors being afraid of giving a bad report, or not showing progress to Antonia's terrifying mother, and the fact that Antonia wasn't what we'd call today college material. She was very charming, but not very interested in learning, other than singing, playing the harp, and of course, dancing. They knew from an early age that Antonia was superficial and a bit frivolous, but again, they had so many kids. She was destined to be married into a lesser royal family, and plus with 15 kids, I think it was one of those situations where the parents just kind of checked out. That is a lot of kids. Antonio's father was particularly loving, and by all accounts, it sounds like he was kind of the fun, stay-at-home dad type. He would play with his kids and indulge them with extravagant gifts. 
probably how Antonia picked that up as her love language. Her mother, however, was not so warm. Antonia was highly emotional and needy when it came to love and affection. Maria Teresa knew that and would basically manipulate her and dangle her love and affection as something that could be earned if Antonia would just do whatever her mother wanted. But other than that, her childhood was idyllic, frolicking in the gardens of the beautiful Viennese palaces. To kind of orient you as to where we are in history, when Antonia was seven years old, a child prodigy performed a piano concerto for the imperial family. His name was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. After his concert, he went to play with Antonia and the other children. According to legend, he fell down and Antonia helped him up. He immediately told her, I'll marry you someday. Very cute. Time passed languidly until Francis I died unexpectedly in his carriage. The children were despondent and Maria Theresa's grief was profound. Her eldest son, Joseph, became her co-regent during this time. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about Antonia's siblings. First off, all of the girls had the first name Maria, followed by several other names. I'm just going to give you the names that their family called them, otherwise it's way too confusing. I'm also only going to outline the siblings who had an impact on Antonia's story because 16 people is a lot. First, we've got Joseph. Joseph, you will want to remember, as he played a key role in Marie Antoinette's marriage. He also became a co-regent with Maria Theresa and was the Holy Roman Emperor upon her death. Next, we've got Christina, who was not only the most beautiful sibling, but she also was mommy's favorite. She was able to convince her mother to let her pursue a love match, and for that, the rest of her siblings were forever resentful of her. She didn't have a close relationship with Marie Antoinette, but by taking herself out of the diplomatic dating pool, she started a chain reaction that would lead to Antonia heading to France. Elizabeth was the next most beautiful daughter, and originally she was intended to become the bride of Louis XV, who was fairly old by this point. Before they could ship her off to France, however, she came down with smallpox, which she survived, but it irreparably damaged her face, and instead she went to a convent. Amalia was close with Antonia, but suffered from severe melancholia because she wasn't allowed to marry the man that she loved like her elder sister, Christina. She never forgave her mother when she was sent to be the Duchess of Parma. She was one of the last people Marie Antoinette wrote to before her execution. Next, we have Archduke Leopold, who was emperor when the French Revolution began. He did try to help his sister, but we'll come back to that later. Okay, now we get back to that chain reaction. Johanna was to be sent to Naples, but she died of smallpox. So instead, the next sister, Josepha, was betrothed to the king of Naples. Except Maria Theresa insisted that Josepha go pray in the crypt where her sister, who had died of smallpox, was lain. So then Josepha contracted smallpox and also died. So that's two sisters down for Naples. So next we get to Carolina. Carolina was the closest in age to Antonia. They shared a governess and were mischievous and inseparable. Carolina was beautiful and she was extremely smart. She was the one that Maria Theresa wanted to go to France because she was most like her mother, that is to say, ruthless and cunning, which the French court was pretty cutthroat back then. But with two sisters dead and the king of Naples knocking down their door, Maria Theresa had to send Carolina. Antonia, for her part, was heartbroken. It had been down to Carolina and Antonia, and now her best friend and confidant was gone. 
But Antonia wasn't to remain at home for long. When she was 14 years old, destiny came calling. Chapter 2, Becoming French. Here's the point in our story where you have to imagine a makeover montage like Pretty Woman or The Princess Diaries. Antonia was desired to be the bride of Louis Auguste, the grandson of Louis XV. Louis Auguste's father had died, as had an elder brother, so it was kind of like a King Henry VIII situation. He was the spare and had to make up for lost time on education. He was also painfully awkward and shy, which we'll circle back to. The French ambassador, the Duc de Choiseul, brokered the arrangement with Maria Theresa. Antonia would bring with her a dowry of 200,000 crowns, and her family would pay for her wedding trousseau, including a wedding dress made of cloth of silver absolutely dripping with pearls and diamonds. There was just one problem. When the French representatives met Antonia and got a good look at her, she was found wanting. The French court was the most fashionable in Europe. French was even the language of diplomacy before English took over. Beauty and perfection were expected. So when the Duc de Choiseul shows up and he sees that Antonia is a free-spirited kid who can barely read and write in German, which was her native tongue, knows nothing of French, knows nothing of etiquette for that matter, has crooked teeth and frumpy clothes, he calls in his sister, the Duchess de Grammont. Antonia is subjected to a crash course in history and languages. Louis XV sent over a tutor named the Abbey Vermond, who said of Antonia, Her character, her heart are excellent. She is more intelligent than has been generally supposed, but she is rather lazy and extremely frivolous. She is hard to teach. Once they got her education to their liking, they set to work on her teeth. They didn't have braces back then, but they did have an early form of them that were shaped like a horseshoe and made of metal. They were threaded with gold wire, and since they were on a deadline, tightened regularly with no painkillers, so that must have been pleasant for her to endure. Next, they had to change up her hair because the French thought her forehead was too high. Keep in mind here that she hadn't even met her future husband, nor would she until her wedding. This was all done and decided by representatives of Louis XV. Another thing to note was that Versailles had extremely strict rules of etiquette which were devised by Louis XIV, the Sun King himself, mostly as a way to keep nobles preoccupied and fighting over stupid positions, such as who gets to hold the king's cup. So the fact that her life was so lax in Austria meant that she had to be schooled on court etiquette. Antonia was happy to do all of this because she was so afraid of letting her mother down. She took all the criticism, all the painful body modifications, she let them dress her in tight corsets constructed of whalebone and huge panniers that made her fill an entire doorway. She would later come to be an icon of style, but at the time, this was all new to her. Once the critical eyes of the French were satisfied, Antonia underwent a marriage by proxy, which meant that her brother, Archduke Ferdinand, stood in for Louis Auguste and they pretended to marry each other so that she would already be the Dauphine of France by the time she set foot on French soil. This was also necessary because once in France, her chaperones were to leave, so it was imperative she be married first. Antonia was packed up in an entourage of 57 carriages for a two and a half week journey to France. It was to be the last time she saw her mother in person. Now, carriages didn't have the same shock suspension as cars, and they didn't exactly have asphalt roads, so imagine being stuck in a carriage 24-7 for two whole weeks with nothing to do. The journey took her all over the Holy Roman Empire, and their stops did involve staying at grand houses where the public would watch her carriage go by, and there were grand displays of fireworks that would erupt at night. 
So it wasn't all terrible. And being just 14 years old by this point, Antonio was excited to be the center of attention and flattered by the excitement of the people along the way. When she arrived in the forest of Compiègne to finally meet her husband, there was a tent in which she was to enter from the Austrian border. There, she was forced to strip off her Austrian clothes and put on new clothes in the French style. Her chaperones and entire entourage from Austria were also to leave her. They even took her pug mops because she wasn't allowed to have an Austrian dog. They wanted her to be fully French. and That included her poor dog. This poor child coming in from another country to be married off and then they take her dog on top of that. Say whatever you want about not feeling sorry for rich people, but that's horrible and I can't imagine how traumatic that must have been. The good news, though, is that she was later able to get mops back. Upon meeting Louis XV and his grandson, her husband, Louis Auguste, Dauphine of France, she charmed the king greatly, and he was very happy to have her there. Louis, however, was not only painfully shy, but had been warned about Austrians his entire life by his parents and tutors. So even if he thought she was pretty or whatever, he felt conflicted. All he wrote in his journal that day was something along the lines of, met the Dauphine. Man, a few words. The next day, the couple, who were both again, children, left for Versailles, where they were to be officially married. She was no longer Maria Antonia. She was now Marie Antoinette. Chapter 3, The New Dauphine. On May 16, 1770, Marie Antoinette married Louis Auguste. More than 5,000 people attended their wedding, and it was decreed it was the wedding of the century. There were a few bad omens, though. First off, the measurements for her dress had been kind of guesstimated when she was still in Austria. I'm unclear if they just hadn't taken her measurements at all, or if it was a situation where, as a freaking child, she was still growing. Whatever it was, the dress didn't fit, which they, of course, didn't discover until they went to dress her for the wedding, as in that morning. They tried to find fabric to cover it up, but they couldn't find any. So she walked down the aisle and then walked through the Hall of Mirrors with the back of her dress wide open. This was a catty court, and people laughed at her under their breath. But I mean, how much could they really laugh when this girl is laden in pearls and diamonds so that the entire hall of mirrors is literally sparkling? There was also a severe storm raging outside, so they had to cancel the fireworks display that had been planned. When the evening festivities were over, the court followed them to their bedroom, as courts liked to do back then, to make sure that they were in fact sharing their bed. Nothing happened that night, however. There was no consummation, nor would there be, for seven years. Now, the subject of consummation is weird and gross to me, but a little recap for you. Back in those days, a marriage wasn't good and valid unless it was consummated. As we learned from Henry VIII, you could easily discard someone so long as you didn't consummate. So Marie Antoinette's position was not actually secure. This entire alliance, which was supposed to bring lasting peace to two warring countries, depended not just on her marriage to Louis Auguste, but also on their having little dauphins to be heir to the French throne. Last bad omen to throw in here. The wedding festivities lasted through the end of May. At the Paris celebration, crowds of people gathered for fireworks, and then a fire broke out. People panicked and tried to flee, and 132 people were crushed to death, with hundreds more hurt. When Marie and Louis heard of it, they immediately sent relief funds, both handing over everything they had in their purses, which came out to more than 6,000 francs. Okay, let's shift back to the couple's marriage dynamic. She was 14 and he was 15. 
She was outgoing and gregarious with a love of parties and having fun. He was very into horseback riding, hunting, and locks, like locksmithing. He really liked locks. He was also painfully shy and awkward. His grandfather thought he was stupid, but far from it. He just didn't know how to communicate with people. So they were cordial with each other, but didn't have anything in common. Now, Louis's grandfather, there's a lot to unpack there. Louis XV had been famous for his sexual exploits and mistresses. By the time Marie Antoinette was on the scene, Madame du Barry was basically the shadow queen of France. How it would work in the courts of the Bourbon kings was they'd have their wives who were there to bear children, then they would take up with a mistress who would wield insane levels of power and be the ones to rule over the court. The French people weren't really a fan of the mistresses, and for all the sexual deviancy she was later accused of during the revolution, Marie Antoinette herself was something of a prude. I think it might have had something to do with her upbringing and general sense of dignity, but she did not approve of Louis XV's mistresses. And just to clarify, I'm talking about her husband's grandfather. Marie's husband, Louis XVI, never once took a mistress. Louis XV had three surviving spinster daughters. They were known as the Madames. The Madames hated all of his mistresses, the previous Madame de Pompadour especially, but not only did they not approve, they also wanted to exert influence over Marie Antoinette and their nephew, Louis Auguste. They gossiped maliciously about Madame de Berry and Marie Antoinette, noted people pleaser, was eager to get the Madames on her side. At the wedding, Marie noticed Barry and asked who she was. Someone told her she gives pleasure to the king. Marie, prudent innocent, said that she wished she too could bring pleasure to the king. Then someone very nicely explained what they really meant, and she was horrified. She refused to speak to or acknowledge Madame de Berry, which caused a huge fiasco. Barry felt slighted and raged to Louis XV about it. Louis XV then got upset with Marie Antoinette, and she started losing favor with him. All of this was reported back to Maria Theresa in Austria because she had loads of spies giving her weekly reports about Marie Antoinette's behavior. So now Maria Theresa is writing to Marie Antoinette like, what are you doing? You haven't consummated anything. You're making the king of France mad. You need to fix this. Finally, Marie Antoinette stood near Barry and said, there are many people at Versailles today. And apparently that was enough because then Barry wasn't upset anymore and they kind of just tolerated each other. The madames, for their part, like other members of the court, called her Austrienne, which was a play on words meaning the Austrian woman or the Austrian bitch. Again, she was 14 years old. So these are the kinds of little trifles you have going on. Marie Antoinette didn't have many friends yet, at least no one that she could trust. Her mother's spying on her and trying to interfere from Austria. Her husband just wants to play with his locks. Her whole purpose of being there is to produce children, but she has no children. She's not queen yet. They're basically waiting out the death of old King Louis XV. The girl needed something to do. She took up court intrigues and turned to partying and gambling. So her husband would get up super early in the morning and go hunting. She'd sleep till 11 and then gear up for social activities. And this was how time passed for the couple. Their marriage still unconsummated until 1774 when the king died of smallpox. Chapter 4. Lorraine. When King Louis XV breathed his last, Louis Auguste entreated Marie Antoinette to pray with him. It was 1774, and he was 20, she 19 years old. As they dropped to their knees, hands clasped in prayer, Louis is said to have cried, 
O God, guide us and protect us. We are too young to reign. Louis had been the Dauphin for many years, but he was the spare. So while Louis actually cared a great deal for his people and helped bring about changes before the outbreak of revolution, he was not only in way over his head, he knew he was in over his head. I'm guessing Marie had similar feelings, but the weight of empire was not upon her in the same way. And honestly, after so many years with nothing to do, just biding her time, it was probably something of a relief for the things she had trained for for so long to finally happen. She was also now free to be top lady at court and no longer had to concern herself with the petty intrigues of catty courtiers. They'd been married for four years, and now that Louis was immersed in matters of state, Marie turned to fashion for pleasure and to set herself apart. Her gowns grew wider and her hair grew taller. She spent lavish amounts on jewelry. A key thing to note here about the spending, she was expected to spend like this. If the queen was cheap and unfashionable, she would gain no respect from the courtiers and nobility. Likewise, her frivolity was resented by the common people, though this didn't become the central critique of her until much later. The early days of being a queen were exciting for her because to an extent, she finally had more control over the people she surrounded herself with. She employed Rose Bertine, the famous minister of fashion, who created her gowns that other nobles would spend a fortune trying to replicate to stay trendy. Her hairdresser, Leonard, would create fanciful bouffants that contained scenes. In one particularly crazy hairstyle, she had an actual ship, like a galleon, in her hair. Versailles was an open palace, and any member of the public could come in. People were allowed to watch the king and queen eat their dinner a practice which Marie Antoinette absolutely loathed. She had long hated the strict etiquette of the court, but didn't really start pushing back against it until she became queen. To make matters worse, the fishwives, which were what they called the women who worked at the markets, they would jeer at the queen and ask why France didn't have a new Dauphin yet, as though it were her fault. A few weeks after the death of Louis XV, her husband, now styled Louis XVI, or Louis XVI, as the French would say, gave Marie... Le Petit Trianon. It was her own private palace on the grounds of Versailles, but far enough away to lend her some privacy where she could entertain her friends, such as the Princess de Lamballe and Duchess de Polignac. She also had many male friends and admirers in her inner circle, and the king was totally okay with all this, probably relieved even, because he liked to be by himself, and he knew how much she craved attention and companionship. Marie was also very fond of plays and would stage pretty detailed, intricate productions of which the nobility would live and die by an invitation to these exclusive affairs. Maria Theresa became increasingly concerned about her daughter's position and wrote letters chastising her daughter for not attracting Louis enough to consummate the marriage. Cordiers whispered and laughed at the couple behind their back. For Marie, it was extremely stressful and she felt pressure on all sides. At the time, and today, Many speculate that the king had some sort of physical deformity that made sex painful, and this is one theory as to why the couple had so much trouble. For Marie's part, she had been taught that she had to submit to her husband, so she was kind of waiting for him to make the first move. But again, Louis Auguste was pretty indifferent to anything but his hunting, and again, those damn locks. Maria Theresa grew so concerned about her daughter's position that she sent her co-regent and Marie's older brother, Joseph, to visit the couple. Joseph, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and it's kind of amazing to me he could just go hang out like this, spent several weeks with them and got on really well with his brother-in-law. He had a strategy to get Marie into his trust, so he's extremely nice to her and supportive and got her to really open up to him and share everything. 
Marie, who desperately missed her family, was excited to have her brother back and confessed everything that had been going on to her brother. After a time, it became clear to Joseph that there was no physical issue with why the two hadn't consummated their marriage. He wrote back to his mother, Maria Teresa, that the problem was that neither Marie Antoinette or Louis Says had ever received the birds and the bees talk. They were young adults by this point and truly did not know how to do sex, essentially. How awkward must that conversation have been? Having your brother, the Holy Roman Emperor, explaining to you and your husband how sex worked. But whatever he said worked because within months, Marie Antoinette was finally pregnant. While Marie Antoinette was disappointed that her first child was a girl, whom they named after her mother, Maria Therese, and they nicknamed her Madame Royale, Marie said, Oh, you were not what was desired, but that makes you no less dear to me. A boy would have been the son of France, but you, Marie Therese, shall be mine. Which is so sweet and kind of tragic because Madame Royale was her only child to survive the revolution. Chapter 5, Madame Deficit. Before we move on to the revolution, we need to backtrack just a little. While Marie and Louis definitely had a very awkward first seven years of marriage, they did develop a genuine fondness and affection for each other. However, like most marriages of the day, her heart was actually somewhere else. Marie Antoinette had met tall, dark, and handsome Axel von Fersen, a Swedish count, at a masked ball at the Royal Opera of Versailles back in 1774 when she had just become queen. There's debate to this day on whether or not they were lovers. Again, she wasn't secure enough in her position without a dauphin to take a lover. It would have been disastrous for her should a child be fathered by someone other than the king. There's no denying that she gave great favor to the count. When he returned to Versailles in 1778, the queen remembered him and immediately made him part of her inner circle. He was extended invitations to Le Petit Trianon, and just the fact that she would light up whenever she saw him or talked about him led to gossip among the other nobles of Versailles. Gossip and jealousy. I don't think I've really given you a visual yet, but hundreds of nobles actually lived with the king and queen at Versailles. If you wanted to be viewed as important, or you wanted the chance to be ingratiated to the king or queen, you had to live at Versailles which was a ruinously expensive thing to do. So tongues wagged when she started paying more mind to Axel, and we'll return to him in a bit. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, okay, she's the queen. Did she actually do anything other than wear pretty clothes? Well, when she first came to Versailles, her mother really pushed her to try to steer her husband toward Austrian interests, particularly when Madame de Berry ousted the Duc de Choiseul. Marie didn't really understand politics and wasn't very convincing. That, plus, like I said before, Louis Auguste was a bit distrustful of her on account of being Austrian. For the most part, she stayed out of politics. What's interesting, though, is that the nobility and the common people alike thought she had a much greater voice with her husband politically than she really did. Traditionally, the Bourbon kings had mistresses, so everything would get blamed on the mistress. Without a mistress to deflect the attention, everything instead went to her. Louis and Marie Antoinette believed in the divine right of kings. Louis, to his credit, also believed in giving his people a voice. He desperately wanted to be loved by his people, and he did try to bring on some democratic changes. For example, the nobility didn't pay taxes. Taxes went to the common people. When Louis tried to make taxation more equitable, the nobles threatened to revolt, so he backed down. France was already in debt by the time Louis and Marie Antoinette had come to the throne. This was because of both the Seven Years' War, as well as the fact that Louis XV was way more of a spendthrift than his grandson. He had so many mistresses to please, after all. 
Further complicating matters was the fact that Louis XVI's economic ministers were really terrible at their jobs. They deregulated the price of grains to the point that bread was insanely expensive for the common people, and bread was a staple food. This led to the flour and bread riots you may have heard of. And I think we'll probably talk about this in historical footnotes episode, but let me just shout from the rooftops right now, she never said let them eat cake. That phrase appeared in a book by Rousseau that was written when Marie was nine years old. So let's just put that one to bed. Okay, so that is your backdrop of what is happening before the French Revolution officially starts. Now, you may have heard of a rugged group of upstarts that included Ben Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. They traveled to France to enlist the aid of Louis XVI. I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but the American Revolution is one of the key reasons behind the French monarchy's fall. France had lost most of their colonies in the Seven Years' War that happened before Louis and Marie were on the throne. In kind of an F.U. to England, which had been an enemy of France for centuries, Louis was like, sign me up, anything to embarrass England. Marie, in one of her few political moves, garnered support from Austria and Russia to further bolster France going up against England like this. The French people were down for the war because, again, fuck England. England, I actually really love you. But they were spending money that they did not have because, remember, they were already broke. I bring all this up because, yes, Marie Antoinette spent lots of money on clothing and jewelry and parties. She did this because she was adopting the French culture at Versailles that already existed. Yes, she could have toned it down, and yes, this is the hill that I want to die on, but it's ridiculous to blame her completely for what happened. In 1789, she was pregnant again, but tragically, that ended in miscarriage, so still no Dauphin. Her maybe lover, Axel von Fersen, did not like people whispering about him and the queen, and he was a young guy ready for glory, so he decided to go fight in the American Revolution. Marie was despondent when he left, but Axel went and met up with George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Marquis de Lafayette, so I'd say he was in pretty good hands. I just marvel every time I do one of these episodes and we get to see all these famous connections play out. More bad news, her mother, Maria Teresa, died in 1780. Her mother was tough, but Marie Antoinette always believed she could win over her mother's love, so this was pretty hard on her. She was further freaked out because now that her mother was dead, she was afraid the Austrian-Franco alliance would disintegrate. Her brother Joseph had just invaded lands, and it didn't go so well for France, so people were coming down hard on her for her allegiance, but Joseph went back to visit them in France to reassure that he was still keeping the alliance. Joseph seemed to be good for their marriage because the next year, Marie Antoinette finally had her long-hoped-for Dauphin. Now, amidst the turmoil of life just 20 miles from Versailles, Marie Antoinette relished her privacy and loved being a mother. She began to wear simpler muslin dresses— which people accused her of being a milkmaid in a nightgown, but then they all rushed out to copy her dresses. At the Queen's Hameau, which is like a rustic little village she had built near the Petit Trianon, she and her close friends would essentially pretend they were peasants and do things like milk cows, after a servant had cleaned the cow, of course. She even invited Mozart's rival Salieri to her Hameau and accompanied him on the harp. Marie loved children and also was very generous with charities. She seems like she was a naive, good-hearted person, but she was also spoiled and sheltered and woefully out of touch. She and Louis had a total of four children, one of which, Sophie, died as a baby. She had two sons, Louis Joseph and Louis Charles. The last big thing I want to talk about before we get to the revolution are the libels and the affair of the diamond necklace. 
These two things were kind of the nail in the coffin of her popularity. The libels were horrible, slanderous pamphlets that attacked public figures. They were pretty bad for the king and his brothers, but Marie Antoinette got it the worst. Many of the ones targeted at her were pornographic and accused her of numerous affairs, sexual deviancy, and lesbianism with her friends, the Princess de Lamballe and Duchess de Polignac. Now, the affair of the diamond necklace. This is going to be the Cliff's Notes version because whole books have literally been written about this. A huge, gaudy diamond necklace was crafted by Louis XV for Madame du Barry. There was a cardinal who had fallen out of favor with Marie Antoinette. He started an affair with a woman who pretended to be friends with the queen and told him that the queen wanted to buy the necklace but didn't want to do it publicly since it would look bad. There were secret rendezvous where she pretended to be Marie Antoinette. She tricked the cardinal into buying the necklace thinking that he would make the queen happy. Instead, the woman skipped off with the necklace. When the sordid affair was found out, everyone immediately blamed Marie Antoinette, even though she had no idea this even happened. She was given the nickname Madame Deficit for her trouble. Chapter 6, Revolution. Okay, dear listeners, the scene has been set, and we are now coming to the French Revolution and the end of Marie Antoinette. After the affair of the diamond necklace, her reputation was in tatters. To add insult to injury, the young Dauphin, Louis-Joseph, died of tuberculosis. Louis XVI was so grief-stricken, he was worse at making decisions than usual, and was so depressed, he was effectively useless in the months leading up to the start of the revolution. Marie, now 33 years old, for the first time, was the one really making decisions and trying to hold things together. She was firmly entrenched in her belief in the divine right of kings, so she was pretty dismissive to the Enlightenment thinking that was taking hold in France, especially after they had just helped America overthrow their monarchy. There had been much civil unrest, and Louis had stationed troops in Paris. People thought he was going to dissolve the newly formed National Assembly. Fearing the troops, the people stormed the Bastille on July 14, 1789. Contrary to popular belief, it was not to release prisoners, although there were like five in there. The Bastille had arms and ammunition, so they stormed the Bastille to arm themselves. Marie Antoinette tried to persuade Louis to use the troops to quash the insurrection, but he didn't really want to start a civil war, so he let the revolutionaries take Paris. The smart members of the nobility saw the writing on the wall and started to flee the country. Louis, to his credit, agreed to go to Paris to talk to his people directly. He was accompanied by Count Axel von Fersen. Things all came to a head, though, on October 5th of 1789. A mob marched to Versailles and stormed the palace. Their intention was to kill the queen. She managed to escape, and if you go to Versailles, they actually show you the room she escaped out of, and she met up with her children and Louis in his bedroom. So think of a murderous, pissed-off crowd with torches and pitchforks. You're in your night clothes, huddled with your family, and then the mob starts shouting for you to come outside. What would you do? If you were Marie Antoinette, you would come out onto the balcony and do the deepest damn curtsy of your life. Bowing to the people seemed to soften the adrenaline because they started shouting, long live the queen. They were apparently very conflicted. None other than the Marquis de Lafayette himself brought troops down and restored order. But the king and his family were escorted back to Paris to live at the Tuileries Palace. They wanted the king to be held accountable to his people and for him to actually live among them. It was the end of their time at Versailles. They lived on a less grand scale, but they were still in a palace. They were essentially prisoners, at least that's how they saw it, and for a time tried to work with the revolutionaries to have a constitutional monarchy. Marie Antoinette had wanted to flee from the get-go, 
but Louis both wanted to make it work with the people and was extremely indecisive. I should note here, they didn't just go straight to the guillotine, they were actually around a few years into the revolution. And in 1791, things became desperate and Louis finally agreed to escape with his family. The Marquis de Lafayette was kind of a moderate in the revolution and was in charge of keeping custody over the royal family. He was in the midst of a guard change when the family slipped out in a carriage driven by knight in shining armor, Axel von Fersen. The plan was complicated and had some stops and changeovers. Axel drove a different carriage after the first changeover. When the family reached Varennes, they were recognized and promptly taken back to Paris. But now, people were even more enraged because they saw this as treason, and Marie Antoinette's brother, Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, sent over a very vague threat that Austria and Prussia would get involved if anything were to happen to the royal family. That was his way of trying to help without sending money or troops. The other monarchies in Europe were super freaked out by what was happening because they were concerned their own people would rise up, but everyone was kind of waiting it out. The revolutionaries panicked and actually declared war on Austria, so I think you can see where this is all headed. In the September massacres of 1792, Marie Antoinette's friend, the Princess de Lamballe, was literally torn to pieces and her head put on a pike, which they then displayed outside of Marie Antoinette's window. Louis XVI was stripped of his title and henceforth referred to as Citizen Louis Capet, which was an ancestral name of the Bourbons. He was executed by guillotine in 1793 after the monarchy was officially abolished. Marie Antoinette and her surviving two children were thrown into actual prison. She had to listen as her younger son, the new Dauphin, Louis Charles, was tortured and re-educated to hate the monarchy and be a loyal citizen of the new republic. About eight months after the death of the king, Marie Antoinette was tried and found guilty of treason. During the trial, it was insinuated that she sexually abused her young son, and she was so taken aback that she tearfully pleaded to the mothers in the room, which did garner her a little sympathy, but she was ultimately taken to the guillotine on October 16, 1793. She was put on the back of a cart, her hair shorn off, and wearing a simple dress. She had lost a significant amount of weight and her trademark beauty due to the stressful and unsanitary conditions of her imprisonment. On her way to her death, she remained dignified and composed. She accidentally stepped on the foot of her executioner and uttered her last words, I'm sorry, sir, I did not mean it. She was executed at the age of 37. Like Anne Boleyn before her, people rushed to dip their handkerchiefs in her blood. Her young son, Louis Charles, would die two years later at the age of 10. His preserved heart was just buried in the tomb of his parents in 2004. Her daughter, Marie Therese, would live to a bitter old age and would even be Queen of France for a matter of minutes before her husband abdicated in 1830. Count Axel von Fersen was murdered by a mob in his native Sweden in 1810. He wrote of Marie Antoinette, I have lost everything I had in this world. The one I love so much for whom I would have given my life a thousand times over is no more. Chapter 7, Vive Lorraine. Okay, so that was your extremely condensed version of the French Revolution. The French Revolution was very complicated, though, and it altered the course of history. And I just gave you the Cliffs notes as they related to our girl Marie. I encourage you to read more about it. Personally, I found that people either love Marie Antoinette or they're weirdly dismissive and aggressive about how stupid she is. At least that's what I've encountered. But I think it's still possible to be empathetic. You don't have to sympathize, but I think empathy for people's stories is something the world could use more of. 
At least this is how I justify my love for Marie Antoinette. I love the -the over-the-top extravagance, the naivety, and the tragedy. All the makings of a compelling story and why she still looms large nearly 300 years later. To that end, let's talk recommendations. First off, I've been on the mailing list for the Palace of Versailles since 2011, and at least once a month, I get an email from them with interesting articles about the people who lived there and about current exhibitions. If you don't want to get emails from them, at least do yourself the favor of exploring the website. You can take virtual tours of Versailles, so if you can't go in person, you can still get a taste of the grandeur. They recently had an electronic artist record sounds that they heard at Versailles, doors creaking, clocks chiming, and they made it into a song. I'll link to it. It's surreal and lovely. If you can go to the palace, I highly recommend going for the walk down to the Petit Trianon and the Queen's Hamel. It's gorgeous, and the air there is really heavy. You can feel the history, and I love that. Gives you a sense of connection to the past. And public service announcement, they have amazing Marie Antoinette ornaments for your Christmas tree at the gift shop and online. So Versailles didn't sponsor this, but I'm telling you, their gift shop is solid. Okay, next let's talk biographies. I went with the 2001 biography Marie Antoinette, The Journey by Antonia Fraser. This book was what Sofia Coppola based her Marie Antoinette movie on in 2006, which we'll talk about in a second. I think I've mentioned on here before that I have to do most of my reading for this podcast by audiobook just due to time constraints and the fact that I'm a slow reader. Most nonfiction, I don't really enjoy via audiobook. And I have to say, this was so interesting and written almost like a narrative that I loved it. I listen to this the same way I listen to fiction, where I'm hanging on every word to find out what happened next. This biography is sympathetic to Marie, though, so if you're wanting something more critical, this is not it. Highly recommend if you're a fan, though. In terms of podcasts, there's a lot out there that will give you your Marie Antoinette overview. My favorite was from the Queen's podcast. If you like your reverence, swearing, and cocktails based on historical figures, this is the podcast for you. The two hosts always put a smile on my face. They focus on queens throughout history, and it's more a comedy bent. Check that out for some lightness. I'm sure you've heard of Noble Blood by now if you're a podcast fan. They did a ton of marketing and were all over the place for a while. Their first episode was about Marie Antoinette, but about the days leading up to her execution. The podcast is well done, but the episode itself is extremely disturbing. They called it the reign of terror for a reason. Listen if you're interested, but know that it's a rough ride. Okay, movies. Two that I love. Obviously, Sofia Coppola's anachronistic Marie Antoinette. It's so fun and colorful and like a knight's tale, I like that they use modern music. The costumes are incredible and probably one of Kirsten Dunst's best performances. Jason Schwartzman as Bumbling Louie is also great. And you'd be surprised how much the movie actually got right. Except for the scene where you can see the Converse sneaker. Definitely not that one. But the part where Mops is taken away? Too real. Farewell, My Queen is a French film that chronicles the last day of Marie Antoinette at Versailles through the eyes of a servant. Diane Kruger is Marie Antoinette, and I have to tell you, perfect casting. She had the look, she had the desperation, the fear, the naivete. One thing I really liked about this film is that you can kind of see the rooms where the nobles lived at Versailles and how they had hundreds of people there at all times. You read that, but without the visual, it's hard to understand. This movie is very well done, leans in hard to the idea that Marie was a lesbian or bisexual. It also has subtitles, just to warn you. On to fiction. 
Like I said at the top of the episode, Becoming Marie Antoinette was one of my formative historical fiction reads. It's a trilogy and covers her early life through her entire reign. The books are Becoming Marie Antoinette, Days of Splendor, Days of Sorrow, and Confessions of Marie Antoinette. I think I maybe didn't read the last one. I don't remember. But the first two were good in terms of getting her story, but told in a firsthand way. I also recommend the Mistresses of Versailles trilogy, which is about the different mistresses of Louis XV. I really enjoyed the one on Madame Pompadour. The author also wrote a book about the Madames, so theoretically, you can just read books of that time period for months on end. Now, if you like YA and you want a ridiculous guilty pleasure read, there's Marie Antoinette Serial Killer, which is like Mean Girls meets the vengeful ghost of Marie Antoinette. It's really bad, but also I enjoyed it. And if I had read it when I was a teenager, I would have been obsessed. I love a good hate read or a good ironic read. This definitely falls into those categories. I have a few more fun book recommendations that I'm going to save for the historical footnotes episodes, so stay tuned for those. I'll also put a link up to my Marie Antoinette perfume if you'd like to know what the Queen of France smelled like. There's also a current exhibit at the prison that held Marie Antoinette and a really amazing write-up about it in the New York Times, and I will link to that as well. I'm changing the historical footnotes schedule slightly for the next few weeks. Every Monday through December 2nd will be footnotes about Marie. Our next full-length episode will be on December 9th, so the second Monday of December. Holiday travel schedule, what can you do? I hope you enjoyed learning about Marie's life. Stay tuned for episodes where we look at her fashion, her perfume, her forbidden love, and her ghost sightings. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that others can find the show. And join me again next month for the story of the English author who invented modern Christmas. Christmas.